Chapter Twenty Three of The First Men in the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. Chapter Twenty Three. An abstract of the six messages first received from Mr. Cavour. The two earlier messages of Mr. Cavour may very well be reserved for that larger volume. They simply tell, with greater brevity and with a difference in several details that is interesting, but not of any vital importance, the bare facts of the making of the sphere and our departure from the world. Throughout, Cavour speaks of me as a man who is dead, but with a curious change of temper as he approaches our landing on the moon. Poor Bedford, he says of me, and this poor young man, and he blames himself for inducing a young man, by no means well equipped for such adventures, to leave a planet on which he was indisputably fitted to succeed, on so precarious a mission. I think he underrates the part my energy and practical capacity played in bringing about the realization of his theoretical sphere. We arrived, he says, with no more account of our passage through space than if we had made a journey of common occurrence in a railway train. And then he becomes increasingly unfair to me. Unfair, indeed, to an extent I should not have expected in a man trained in the search for truth. Looking back over my previously written account of these things, I must insist that I have been altogether juster to Cavour than he has been to me. I have extenuated little and suppressed nothing, but his account is, It speedily became apparent that the entire strangeness of our circumstances and surroundings, great loss of weight, attenuated but highly oxygenated air, consequent exaggeration of the results of muscular effort, rapid development of weird plants from obscure spores, lurid sky, was exciting my companion unduly. On the moon his character seemed to deteriorate. He became impulsive, rash, and quarrelsome. In a little while his folly in devouring some gigantic vesicles and his consequent intoxication led to our capture by the Selenites before we had had the slightest opportunity of properly observing their ways. He says, you observe, nothing of his own concession to these same vesicles. And he goes on from that point to say that we came to a difficult passage with them, and Bedford mistaking certain gestures of theirs, pretty gestures they were, gave way to a panic violence. He ran amuck, killed three and perforce I had to flee with him after the outrage. Subsequently we fought with a number who endeavoured to bar our way, and slew seven or eight more. It says much for the tolerance of these beings that on my recapture I was not instantly slain. We made our way to the exterior, and separated in the crater of our arrival, to increase our chances of recovering our sphere but presently I came upon a body of Selenites, led by two who were curiously different, even in form, from any of these we had seen hitherto, with larger heads and smaller bodies, 
and much more elaborately wrapped about, and after evading them for some time I fell into a crevasse, cut my head rather badly, and displaced my patella, and finding crawling very painful, decided to surrender, if they would still permit me to do so. This they did, and perceiving my helpless condition, carried me with them again into the moon. And of Bedford I have heard or seen nothing more, no, nor, so far as I can gather, any selenite. Either the night overtook him in the crater, or else, which is more probable, he found the sphere, and desiring to steal a march upon me, made off with it, only, I fear, to find it uncontrollable, and to meet a more lingering fate in outer space. And with that Cavour dismisses me and goes on to more interesting topics. I dislike the idea of seeming to use my position as his editor to deflect his story in my own interest, but I am obliged to protest here against the turn he gives these occurrences. He said nothing about that gasping message on the blood-stained paper in which he told, or attempted to tell, a very different story. The dignified self-surrender is an altogether new view of the affair that has come to him, I must insist, since he began to feel secure among the lunar people. And as for the stealing a march conception, I am quite willing to let the reader decide between us on what he has before him. I know I am not a model man, I have made no pretense to be, but am I that? However, that is the sum of my wrongs. From this point I can edit Cavour with an untroubled mind, for he mentions me no more. It would seem the Selenites who had come upon him carried him to some point in the interior down a great shaft, by means of what he describes as a sort of balloon. We gather from the rather confused passage in which he describes this, and from a number of chance allusions and hints and other and subsequent messages, that this great shaft is one of an enormous system of artificial shafts that run, each from what is called a lunar crater, downwards for very nearly a hundred miles towards the central portion of our satellite. These shafts communicate by transverse tunnels, they throw out abysmal caverns and expand into great globular places. The whole of the moon's substance for a hundred miles inward, indeed, is a mere sponge of rock. Partly, says Cavour, this sponginess is natural, but very largely it is due to the enormous industry of the Selenites in the past. The enormous circular mounds of the excavated rock and earth it is that form those great circles about the tunnels known to earthly astronomers, misled by a false analogy, as volcanoes. It was down this shaft they took him, in this sort of balloon he speaks of, at first into an inky blackness, and then into a region of continually increasing phosphorescence. Cavour's dispatches show him to be curiously regardless of detail for a scientific man, but we gather that this light was due to the streams and cascades of water, no doubt containing some phosphorescent organism, that flowed ever more abundantly downward towards the central sea. And as he descended, he says, The Selenites also became luminous. 
and at last far below him he saw, as it were, a lake of heatless fire, the waters of the central sea, glowing and eddying in strange perturbation, like luminous blue milk that is just on the boil. This lunar sea, says Cavour in a later passage, is not a stagnant ocean. A solar tide sends it in a perpetual flow around the lunar axis, and strange storms and boilings and rushings of its waters occur, and at times cold winds and thunderings that ascend out of it into the busy ways of the great anthill above. It is only when the water is in motion that it gives out light. In its rare seasons of calm it is black. Commonly, when one sees it, its waters rise and fall in an oily swell, and flakes and big rafts of shining, bubbly foam drift with the sluggish, faintly glowing current. The Selenites navigate its cavernous straits and lagoons in little shallow boats of a canoe-like shape. And even before my journey to the galleries about the Grand Lunar, who is master of the moon, I was permitted to make a brief excursion on its waters. The caverns and passages are naturally very tortuous. A large proportion of these ways are known only to expert pilots among the fishermen, and not infrequently Selenites are lost forever in their labyrinths. In their remoter recesses, I am told, strange creatures lurk, some of them terrible and dangerous creatures that all the science of the moon has been unable to exterminate. There is particularly the Rapha, an inextricable mass of clutching tentacles that one hacks to pieces only to multiply, and the Tsi, a darting creature that is never seen, so subtly and suddenly does it slay. He gives us a gleam of description. I was reminded on this excursion of what I have read of the mammoth caves. If only I had had a yellow flambeau instead of the pervading blue light, and a solid-looking boatman with an oar instead of a scuttle-faced selenite working an engine at the back of the canoe, I could have imagined I had suddenly got back to earth. The rocks about us were very various, sometimes black, sometimes pale blue and veined, and once they flashed and glittered as though we had come into a mine of sapphires and below one saw the ghostly phosphorescent fishes flash and vanish in the hardly less phosphorescent deep. Then presently a long ultramarine vista down the turgid stream of one of the channels of traffic, and a landing stage, and then perhaps a glimpse up the enormous crowded shaft of one of the vertical ways. In one great place heavy with glistening stalactites, a number of boats were fishing, we went alongside one of these and watched the long-armed selenites winding in a net. They were little hunchbacked insects, with very strong arms, short bandy legs, and crinkled face masks. As they pulled at it, that net seemed the heaviest thing I had come upon in the moon. It was loaded with weights, no doubt of gold, and it took a long time to draw for in those waters the larger and more edible fish lurk deep. The fish in the net came up like a blue moonrise, a blaze of darting, tossing blue. Among their catch was a many-tenticulate, 
evil-eyed black thing, ferociously active, whose appearance they greeted with shrieks and twitters, and which with quick, nervous movements they hacked to pieces by means of little hatchets. All its dissevered limbs continued to lash and writhe in a vicious manner. Afterwards, when fever had hold of me, I dreamt again and again of that bitter, furious creature rising so vigorous and active out of the unknown sea. It was the most active and malignant thing of all the living creatures I have yet seen in this world inside the moon. The surface of the sea must be very nearly two hundred miles, if not more, below the level of the moon's exterior. All the cities of the moon lie, I learnt, immediately above the central sea, in such cavernous spaces and artificial galleries as I have described, and they communicate with the exterior by enormous vertical shafts, which open invariably in what are called by earthly astronomers the craters of the moon. The lid covering one such aperture I had already seen during the wanderings that had preceded my capture. Upon the condition of the less central portion of the moon I have not yet arrived at very precise knowledge. There is an enormous system of caverns in which the moon-calves shelter during the night, and there are abattoirs and the like. In one of these it was that I and Bedford fought with the selenite butchers, and I have since seen balloons laden with meat descending out of the upper dark. I have as yet scarcely learnt as much of these things as a Zulu in London would learn about the British corn supplies in the same time. It is clear, however, that these vertical shafts and the vegetation of the surface must play an essential role in ventilating and keeping fresh the atmosphere of the moon. At one time, and particularly on my first emergence from my prison, there was certainly a cold wind blowing down the shaft, and later there was a kind of sirocco upward that corresponded with my fever. For at the end of about three weeks I fell ill of an indefinable sort of fever, and in spite of sleep and the quinine tabloids that very fortunately I had brought in my pocket, I remained ill and fretting miserably, almost to the time when I was taken into the presence of the Grand Lunar, who is master of the moon. I will not dilate on the wretchedness of my condition, he remarks, during those days of ill health. And he goes on with great amplitude with details I omit here. My temperature, he concludes, kept abnormally high for a long time, and I lost all desire for food. I had stagnant waking intervals, and sleep tormented by dreams, and at one phase I was, I remember, so weak as to be earth-sick and almost hysterical. I longed almost intolerably for color to break the everlasting blue. He reverts again presently to the topic of this sponge-caught lunar atmosphere. I am told by astronomers and physicists that all he tells is in absolute accordance with what was already known of the moon's condition. Had earthly astronomers had the courage and imagination to push home a bold induction, says Mr. Wendigee, they might have foretold almost everything that Cavour has to say of the general structure of the moon. They know now pretty certainly that moon and earth are not so much 
satellite and primary, as smaller and greater sisters, made out of one mass, and consequently made of the same material. And since the density of the moon is only three-fifths that of the earth, there can be nothing for it but that she is hollowed out by a great system of caverns. There was no necessity, said Mr. Jabez Flapp, F.R.S., that most entertaining exponent of the facetious side of the stars, that we should ever have gone to the moon to find out such easy inferences, and points the pun with an allusion to Gruyere. But he certainly might have announced his knowledge of the hollowness of the moon before. And if the moon is hollow, then the apparent absence of air and water is, of course, quite easily explained. The sea lies within at the bottom of the caverns, and the air travels through the great sponge of galleries, in accordance with simple physical laws. The caverns of the moon on the whole are very windy places. As the sunlight comes round the moon, the air in the outer galleries on that side is heated, its pressure increases, some flows out on the exterior and mingles with the evaporating air of the craters, where the plants remove its carbonic acid while the greater portion flows round through the galleries to replace the shrinking air of the cooling side that the sunlight has left. There is, therefore, a constant eastward breeze in the air of the outer galleries, and an upflow during the lunar day up the shafts, complicated, of course, very greatly by the varying shape of the galleries and the ingenious contrivances of the selenite mind. End of chapter